Welcome to Red Book Club. You may have noticed we're going by a different name. As we're changing and developing the way that we operate, we thought that a new name could be a nice way to reflect that. So we'll keep your ear to the ground in the future for news of how we're improving and expanding what we do. But apart from that, it's brand new name, same old podcast. Anyway, without further ado, I'll hand you over to Andrew to get us started. This week we're going to be covering How Lenin Studied Marx by Nadezhda Krupskaya. And we're going to do a quick round of our introductions with our names, pronouns, and if we could be one kind of juice, what would we be? My name is Connor. I use he, him pronouns. And if I could drink one type of juice for the rest of my life, it would be pineapple juice because it goes down smooth and you can drink loads of it. I don't think I'd ever get bored. (laughs) Hi, my name's Andrew, he, him pronouns. And if I had to drink one kind of juice, it would probably be grapefruit juice because it's bitter and sweet. I said grapefruit once to someone as well, and they're like, you'd get bored of it after one glass. No, you put enough vodka in there, you'll never get bored. <laughs> okay, okay. <laughs> okay, um, I'm Jess, and I'm just going to have to go with that sweet bean juice, and coffee is... I mean, I already basically drink one beverage for the rest of my life, and that's it. But if it was an actual juice, I would say cranberry. And I would argue the same as Andrew, because it is very good alcohol-adjacent. It's a good juice. Antioxidants. You can mix it every way you want. Yeah. Mm -hmm. It's good for you. So this is a little bit of a different work that we're doing this week. It's a short one. It's only nine pages long. And there are only three of us in here. So um, it's going to be a little bit of a shorter discussion. Yeah, let's get into it. All right, well, this text opens up uh, right in about, I think it was 1891, Russia. And the first thing Nadezhda says is she's talking about how works of Marx at the time were actually really hard to come by, whereas most of the people who considered themselves Marxists in Russia at the time before the revolution had only had access to capital. Most of them hadn't even had the Communist Manifesto, let alone any of his other, other works available to them. So the opening of this is that it's really hard in 1890s Russia to come by these works because a lot of it was very much criminalized by the Tsar. So the first thing uh, Krupskaya tells us about Lenin is that when he came onto the scene, he kind of burst onto the scene and that he had already uh, read so much Marx and he had this large swath of information from Marx that most people didn't have access to at the time. So a lot of people were just flat out enamored by this new face on the scene who seemed to know Marx backward and forward. Right. Oh, I was going to use a quote here, actually, from the first page. And this kind of lays the path for what she's explaining here. So um, like Andrew said, where the background here, the setting, the context is that these works were hard to come by in general, but that despite that, Lenin was a student of Marx. And there's a quote here that says, Lenin did a tremendous amount to illuminate the path of struggle of the Russian proletariat with the light of Marxism. 50 years have passed since the death of Marx, but for our party, Marxism is still the guide to action. Leninism is merely a further development of Marxism, a deepening of it. And so now she starts to explain how he used these works to come up with his theories and to come to the conclusions he did politically. Yeah, and one of the things they point out that I think is, I mean, it, it's, it's kind of obvious on, you know, second thought, but when the information first comes, it's surprising that Since all these works were criminalized, none of it was, for the most part, in Russian. So a lot of these works had to be translated 
from some other language to a language more understandable by the Russian proletariat at the time. So they talk about how when Lenin read Poverty of Philosophy, it was in French and he read it aloud to his sister in German, and that most of the works were actually read in German and then thus had to be translated into Russian. So what they say here is that is that Lenin read most of these works in German and then translated key paragraphs, key pieces of information for himself into, into Russian. Kripskaya herself said she only read the Communist Manifesto for the first time in 1898, and that was in German while she was in exile. Right, with Lenin. Mm -hmm. And a little uh, historical background. So um, Lenin and Nadia, Nadia is probably a better version of her, of her name for us to use because we can pronounce it well. But Lenin and Nadia were married so that they could be in exile together. So that's where they both kind of doubled down on their work and their dedication to writing at this point. So something that I took out of this section is the importance of knowing foreign languages. And I say that as someone who only fluently speaks English. Like I've got a bit of a basic understanding of a few languages, but I think even today it's really important for us to try if we can to learn another language. Like for example, the amount of works and even journalistic pieces that are coming out of, for example, China or South America, I think knowing different languages and being able to do as Lenin did and translate them for comrades and for ourselves to study from, I think that can be really important going forwards. Absolutely. And, and on that note, it's actually something, it's really amazing to me how like, you know, all these works were really hard to come by. Access was, you know, terribly difficult. So all, they all had to be translated from other languages and whatnot. I mean, I see a nice parallel between what we're doing today is taking information that can be difficult for some people to access and, and, and making it more accessible. But at the same time, can you imagine, like we live in a, in a largely monolingual lingual world. What if we had the same kind of criminalization policy against Marxism today that they did now? I mean, we would be truly and genuinely just screwed. I mean, who would yeah. be around in, in America to, to translate these works when we live in, in a country where almost, I mean, so few people speak a second language. It's incredible. Right. And just to put into perspective the kind of work that these illegal printing presses were doing, a few months ago, I was in Georgia and went to Tbilisi where Stalin was organizing and he was running an illegal printing press underground. So it was like a house and you go in there and there's just this huge hole, almost like a well with yeah, no, nothing, <laughs> basically. It's just a, a big, deep hole that they went down, and they would climb down this hole, and underneath here, they built another really long tunnel, and through that tunnel, they had a printing press, basically so that if the authorities turned up, they could just pretend nothing was going on. The materials that they were printing there, they were showing me where these things were being sent to. They were being sent from Tbilisi, which is to the south of Russia and to like north northeast of Turkey. And it was going through Turkey, through Europe. Some of them were reaching as far as London and Amsterdam, but throughout all of Eastern Europe, definitely in the Caucasus and Russia. And this is just like, yeah, a few people there underground with their, with their press. That's so phenomenal. It's absolutely daunting, like the work that these folks had to put in from translation to literally burying printing press. You know, I think it was what, almost 30 meters under the earth is how deep that trench was. Yeah, so something like, like that incredible like yeah we we do a lot of work here and we, we think we work really hard to to make this information accessible but can you imagine the amount of work that the folks in revolutionary russia were were putting in at the time just so that their comrades could read a copy of you know the poverty of philosophy right 
I thought it was interesting. I, I don't know why, like reading this to me was really, I don't know, like heartwarming and wholesome as somebody who does study, you know, works of communist theory. It was like, it made me feel like the distance between Glennon and I was not so distant. Like that this is, this is the same kind of methodology that any of us uses. And like, I appreciated that she listed off the works that he, that he cited when he published Who Are the Friends of the People? And she said that specifically he had used, he'd referenced the Communist Manifesto, the Critique of Political Economy, Poverty of Philosophy, German Ideology, the Letter of Marx to Rouge, and Engels' books, Anti-During, and The Origin of the Family, Private Property, and the State. And it was like, it's cool because like, it's nice to know where he got the ideas that he has. Like, of course, he's the sum total of all of his experiences in life. But where he's getting his ideas are not so distant from where I'm getting mine and where, where we can get ours. And I appreciate that Kripskaya says that Lenin not only knew Marx, but he also thought deeply on all of his teachings. And she talks about a speech that he gave at the third All-Russian Congress of the YCL in 1920. And that he said that it was necessary to take the whole sum of human knowledge and to take it in such a way that communism will not be something learned by heart, but something which you have thought out yourselves, something which forms the inevitable conclusion from the point of view of modern education. And says that if a communist were to boast of communism on the basis of ready-made conclusions without doing serious, big, and difficult work, without thoroughly understanding the facts towards which he must take a critical attitude, such a communist would be a very poor one. No investigation, no right to speak. Right. It's like, yeah. <laughs> it's almost like... Mao and Lenin were making their theories off of some of the exact same background info. Wild. Wild. Another thing that I thought was really cool and that I didn't realize before was that in 1914, Lenin wrote a biography of Marx, which I now need to get my hands on. Yeah, yeah. <gasps> oh my God. I might be wrong. Was it a entry for an encyclopedia possibly? Yeah, it was yeah. the Encyclopedia yeah. Granat, whatever that is. Yeah, she says that it illustrates better than anything else the wonderful knowledge of the works of Marx by Lenin. Which just seems so wholesome, right? Yeah, I think when you mentioned earlier about how Lenin was thinking deeply on all of Marx's teachings as well as just reading them, for me that kind of drove home the importance to, to read actively and to take notes while you're reading. I know it's very easy to kind of sit there, well, it's not even that easy to start with, but to, to sit there with a book in your hands and see the words let them sink into your head and just flick through the pages. But I think taking notes for me, at least of what I've found, is it really helps me to remember stuff and it helps me to, um, yeah, more deeply to understand, to understand what I'm reading. And as well as to like focus while you're reading, try not to be distracted. Right. And that a book is never done was another huge thing she points out here is that like Lenin just tenaciously and endlessly read and reread works of Marx and he never read it just or sometimes i'm sure he read it just to read it but the, she describes the way he read it with a purpose of with a question in mind that he was consulting with marx he was looking for the answers to very particular questions by reading through these texts and understanding the way that marx lays out the material conditions in his circumstance and his analysis and then lenin would apply that to the great questions that he had himself so like i love the way that she describes him as constantly consulting with marx I love it. Yeah, that's a phrase he apparently used himself. Like he would be in a room full of people 
and trying to figure out one one question or another. He'd be like, okay, I'm going to go and consult with Max. Oh, who wants to consult with Max? <laughs> I love it. But it's nice. I think it really emphasizes that relationship between the reader and the book. Right, because I kind of feel like we consult with all of these people too, right? Yeah, definitely. It's not a static process, like a book that you, it's just a text and you read it. Someone explained it to me once as like, it's almost like having a conversation with the author. Yeah. So for me, that's how I found a book. It's like you're reading, but at the same time, it's like sitting and having a conversation with some really intelligent person, except you don't even have to do any, any of the hard work. You just have to listen. Right. Granted, I do want to say, so I have a religious background. I grew up in a fundamentalist Christian home. And I do have to say that my knee-jerk reaction to the idea of consulting the text is hesitance at the appearance of dogmatism. So I think that that's important for us to, you know, think about. Of course, I don't think that us, you know, the present audience is, is you know, a group that has that problem because I think we're really dedicated to to dialectical analysis of of things but like that's not yeah well yeah and even even later on in the text there's a there's an excerpt saying that Marx and Engels said that their teaching quote is not a dogma but a guide to action right these words of theirs were continually repeated by Lenin the method by which he studied the works of Marx and Engels and revolutionary practice all the circumstances of the epoch of proletarian revolutions helped Lenin to convert just the revolutionary side of Marx into a real guide to action. It 100% wasn't his intention for it to be dogmatic. Absolutely. I, I know that's not what you're saying. No, and that's kind of where I was going with it, only you just wrapped up my point better. So, so thank you. I just wanted to caution the reader that it may sound reminiscent to dogmatism just based on the phrasing, but that that's not at all what was happening in this text. And that Lenin was meticulous and studious. And the way that he approached these concepts that Marx laid out was like with the last quote that I just read, was that he needed to fully understand them and not just take them at face value, which is the difference between dogmatism and, you know, consulting. I really appreciate that Lenin Lenin does this. And that's that's basically why I wanted so badly to do this text, because I appreciated so much that seriousness and reverence that Lenin used when approaching the theory that he based his actions on. Lenin wasn't just running out doing things, reckless abandon. He was like, hey, I know my actions are important and I have to make sure that I've fully studied all of the, I don't know, factors that contribute to what's going to happen like when I inflict an action on this event. I think it's really great and it's reflective of him being just a genuinely good communist that he takes the time to think out what he's doing instead of just doing. Absolutely. One thing, there's another piece in this that I thought immediately took me back to uh, Combat Liberalism by Mao and it was about ideological struggle. And what Nadia is telling us is that Lenin hated polemic for polemic's sake. He thought that struggle was keenly important, but he could not stand when people argued to anything but the point. So this is where we're talking about people who attack your character instead of arguing the points of different. Just he hated people who just wanted, you know, these vociferous opinions and these obstinate antagonistic stances for the sake of basically for the sake of attention. He was all about ideological struggle that stuck to the point. And he was quite fine with people being, you know, what he describes as sharp or crude with each other. Like you can argue passionately as long as it's to the point. And he says this something about Mering, 
or Mering, and he says, uh, Mering is right in saying that Marx and Engels gave little thought to a high tone. They did not stop long to think before dealing a blow, but they did not whine about every blow they received. Yeah. So he's really just I talking about how, like, yeah, you, you got to be prepared to go in on people and you need to be prepared to have people come back and challenge you. And sometimes you will be wrong, but like always arguing to the point and always struggling in good faith, as we learned from Mao, and always for the point of unity and growth and never for the point of, you know, factionalism or divisiveness. That is good struggle. You're allowed to be passionate about that, as we very much know Lenin and Stalin were in their time. They they were known for arguing, and people would describe them as crude sometimes. But as long as they were arguing to the point was their whole purpose was that you need to always stay to the material conditions and argue dialectically and not for your own gain or for opportunists, whatever. Yeah. That quote about how Marx and Engels... They didn't stop long to think before dealing a blow, but they didn't whine about every blow they received. That reminded me of, I think it was last year, Marx's grave in Highgate Cemetery was vandalised. Oh. Yeah, basically some people came and covered it in red spray paint, spraying like, I don't know, X amount of million people dead, um, doctrine of murder or some, just some bullshit, I don't know. But yeah, basically after that attack, a few days later, while it was being cleaned up, someone came and attacked the plaque on it with a hammer. They didn't manage to do, I mean, they said it did irreparable damage, but I saw it a few months later and it's, I, I couldn't see where, where it was attacked. The point being, I think Vijay Prashad said something at the time saying that Marx wouldn't have cared about this at all. Like he would have just brushed it off, gone for a pint, talked with people and got back to his organizing work straight away. This is the kind of thing that didn't upset him at all. Right. I think that's kind of because we've read enough Marx at this point, I think we can, you know, vouch for the fact that that Marx is critical of things just because they need to have criticism and it has nothing to do with his feeling about it. And and the people that he criticizes, he praises when they're right too. And I think that's, you know, like Adam Smith probably has just as many dunks as he does praises in Capital. I think that's an important thing to think about with Marx because yeah, I wholeheartedly believe he wouldn't give a shit if somebody had, you know, busted a plaque on his grave, like he wouldn't have cared. He'd be like, okay, but does that affect how we organize? Like, does this change how, like, so how do we get the people to be liberated? Like, this is, this is just, this is completely irrelevant and menial. Yeah. He'd be like, nice work, man. I'm still right though. Right. I know. Right. He'd be like, in here, you'll see where I reference Marx. <laughs> <laughs> you mad? <laughs> <laughs> But yeah, I think I think you were right, Andrew, earlier on talking about um, the ideological struggle that Lenin was engaging in. It's very different to the kind of, especially with the online culture that we have now, where, as you said, people will attack people just to attack each other. And um, there's a there's a quote in there saying, "The shock des opinions, j'aille la vérité." Truth arises from a conflict of opinions, says the French proverb. Lenin loved to carry it out. He constantly brought to light and contrasted class points of view on the basis of the questions of the workers' movement. You need to be able to engage with your ideological opponents. It mentions later on about how he, he would read, read really broadly. He wouldn't only read, for example, Marx or the people he already agreed with. He would read people's criticisms of Marx to be able to understand their viewpoint as well. And I think this kind of mudslinging or just feuds that people have with each other is not always so useful, or that it's not necessarily useful. Because education is important, but it's hard to educate when you 
kind of coming up against a brick wall of someone's entrenched opinions. I think you need to understand the position that you're arguing against in order to be able to argue effectively. And that's something that Lenin definitely did. Right. And I think that that concept holds a little bit of a special place in our hearts here, specifically the idea of reading the ideas of of the opponents of the people who you agree with, understanding the argument from both sides. And and we really are not dialectical materialists if we don't do that. Mm Mm-hmm. Um, realistically. We have to understand the contradictions. And and even if somebody is just a straight up asshole and disagrees with somebody who does have mostly the right line, the thing is there's probably still a good reason for them to disagree. At least as far as people that are peers in the same realm of academia, little things where they fall out with their own organizing group, you know, we're not going to understand why that happened unless we actually read their words. And so you know, arguably, uh, Nadia did eventually join the workers' opposition and did stage a protest specifically against Stalin. So in some vein, Nadia, despite the fact that she was married to Lenin, is is controversial in um, some Marxist-Leninist spaces. And But it's so important, as we can tell from reading through this, to understand her perspective. So I'm really glad that Lenin felt that way as well, that it's so important to read all sides of the argument if we wonder, want to fully understand um, the reality of the situation. Well, yeah, I, I agree. I think the impression that I got was that he was always kind of focused on the task at hand. And he was able to tell the difference between a fight that was worth having and one that was worth walking away from. And I think Kripskaya was in a really good position, like quite a unique position to be able to see this. She says... Lenin had one favorite word which he frequently used, quibbling. If a polemic began which was not to the point, if people began to pick at trifles or juggle with facts, he used to say, that is mere quibbling. <laughs> and I imagine that's the kind of thing that, obviously with her proximity to, to Lenin as his wife, that's the kind of thing she would have seen, I imagine, in day-to-day life. Yeah. And, and I mean, this all has to do with, with struggle for growth. People who don't grasp the idea of struggle for growth in Marxist circles are kind of, you know, it blows my mind. Like, what is the dialectic? It is the back and forth, the struggle for a new outcome. If you're not arguing in good faith, and if you're not, if you don't approach a a conversation always prepared to be wrong, but at the same time prepared to be right, then you aren't struggling dialectically. You're coming in deterministically trying to show how right you are and how grand you are, not in the name of of growth. It's not in the name of educating the person you're berating. It's in the name of of showing everybody how right you are. And, you know, that's the exact kind of struggle that that Lenin and Mao pushed back against very openly. I thought it was uh, another quote here from uh, Nadia, where she says that while studying simultaneously also the sayings of Marx that referred to questions analogous to those which sprang up among us in connection with the breakdown of the revolution and questions of dialectical and historical materialism, Lenin learned from Marx how to apply to the study of historical development the method of dialectical materialism. So he was explicitly a dialectical materialist. I mean, we know that now, but he learned this from Marx, how to take the argument from all of its parts and come up with a conclusion about it from there. I think we were talking a little bit before we started recording about how, well, personally for me, when I kind of started moving further towards the left, like reading more more communist texts, I think this book would have been really great to to have read like straight off the bat. It explains so many points so well. She's a really concise writer. And 
I don't know. I, I feel like it should be primary reading for Marxist-Leninists, and I'm I'm kind of embarrassed that only recently this is the first time that I've read or or even heard of this work. It should be it should be spoken about more often. It's really important. I agree. For me, my experience of becoming a Marxist-Leninist was wanting to know more about where the ideas came from, why people were saying what they were saying, and to understand Lenin's methodology and what he was reading. And like where these ideas were coming from. If I'd known that straight off the bat, I feel like I would have become an ML instantly upon reading this text. So there's a little bit of a quote here that's um, somewhat long, but you know it's only a nine-page thing anyway, so it can only be so long. <laughs> yeah, go for it. But I thought this was cool. So she's talking again about the method of studying Marx and how it armed uh, Lenin for struggle against the distortions of Mar- Marxism. She says, Marx's doctrines, sorry, Lenin writes, Marx's doctrines are now undergoing the same fate which more than once in the course of history has befallen the doctrines of other revolutionary thinkers and leaders of oppressed classes struggling for emancipation. During the lifetime of great revolutionaries, the oppressing classes have invariably meted out to them relentless persecution and received their teaching with the most savage hostility, most furious hatred, and a ruthless campaign of lies and slanders. After their death, however, attempts are usually made to turn them into harmless saints, canonizing them, as it were, and investing their name with a certain halo by way of consolation to the oppressed classes and with the object of duping them, while the while at the same time emasculating and vulgarizing the real essence of their revolutionary theories and blunting their revolutionary edge. At the present time, the bourgeoisie and the opportunists within the labor movement are cooperating in this book or in this work of adulterating Marxism, they omit, obliterate, and distort the revolutionary side of its teaching, its revolutionary soul, and push to the foreground and extol what is or seems acceptable to the bourgeoisie. All the social chauvinists are now Marxists. Save the mark. And there's a footnote that says, "Don't laugh." And it says, "And more and more do German professors, erstwhile specialists in the demolition of Marx, now speak of the national German Marx, who forsooth has educated the splendidly organized working class for the present predatory war. So I appreciated that he talks about how Marx was essentially being like defanged, like his theories were being disarmed so that they were cutesy ideas that were tiny concessions to the working class so that they can continue to ignore Marx. And I thought that was an interesting thing because I feel like Nadia is kind of precluding to the idea that that's happening to Lenin. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And I think we can see that that's definitely happened. So um, Lenin, while while his writings are chock full of revolutionary fury, um, (laughs) they are boiled down to some... I don't know, harmless writings of some dude that happened to run a state at one time. And I appreciate that, that this was kind of um, foretelling his own, the, the social view of his own work. Yeah, yeah, completely. I mean, this still happens to this day. We see it all the time. For example, um, like Rosa Luxemburg, James Connolly, Black Panthers. I mean, it's the, it's the social Democrats mo to to take marx and water it down and and make it more palatable to the petty bourgeoisie that's that's what we know social democracy is kind of always been geared towards it's always just this liberal attempt at being the most acceptable possible form to the bourgeoisie 
I mean, uh, she, she goes in, uh, Krupskaya goes in on these people. She calls them these vulgarizers of Marxism, never gave thought to the words of Marx on the necessity of replacing the weapon of criticism by criticism with weapons. Like, I love that line. Like, that's Krupskaya yeah. herself talking about how social Democrats will just, like we said, completely defang any, any revolutionary movement and take these these amazing, truly revolutionary works and just sap them of any any of their edge and, you know, turn it into this reformist, electoralist, petty bourgeois party of the, quote, workers. Yeah, even, um, I guess, not social democrats, but people who call themselves communists do this against people who are Marxist-Leninists. For example, Che Guevara or, or Frida Kahlo. These people get defanged. Right. Like how many, how many uh, bros like have you seen just wearing a Che Guevara shirt and they have no fucking mm. clue who Che is? And now he's just this pop culture icon and nobody even like, that's a really effective way to erase the revolutionary legacy of Che. Yeah, even among the left, I think with Che, che particularly. I mean, what was that quote of his? He said, I, I came to communism through Papa Stalin or something like that. Yeah. He said he. Re- I think he said he he was reading Stalin when it was a bad time to read Stalin. Right, and Frida Kahlo's I, the quote was um, like I'm paraphrasing something along the lines of that she was she was mourning the death of Comrade Stalin when he died. Yeah, which is interesting because she dated Trotsky. Hmm. Who? Well, I mean, by the way, Kripskaya has strong feelings about. <laughs> She's, he's exactly who Lenin's talking about when he's talking about people who love polemic for polemic's sake and put the ego before the party. Trotsky is pretty textbook what we're talking about when we talk about struggle in bad faith and not for the sake of growth. And one right. of the things I found really interesting about like just the general structure of this text was that the whole way Lenin learned was we start in the 1890s and he's learning by reading. But also in, in uh, what was it, in the 1890s, he was also teaching capitals to the workers' communities. So he was work- learning by teaching at the same time as doing. And then he was also struggling for the sake of growth as another means of learning. So like we hear this repeated again and again. We've heard these exact things from Mao. There's a theme going on here about like how Marxists should be learning. And we learn through... Through reading, we learn through practice, and we learn through through teaching. So, and that also actually, I think, is important to bring back to who the author is. So, Nadia Kripskaya was her position in the revolution was not just adjacent to Lenin. Um, she was the commissar of education. She was instrumental in developing the young pioneers and the Komsomol and um, specifically laid out the instructions for educating the workers after the revolution took took hold and they were in this new society, this communist society, and they were restructuring everything. And 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 she specifically came out and talked about how it's so vitally important to educate the masses and that every every cook should know how to run their government. And so she actually laid out the plan to do so. So Nadia is is not just, you know, Lenin adjacent, which I think, you know, us in, in this recording right now understand that. But in Marxist circles, you know, you don't even know the name N- Nadezhda Kripskaya, you know, Lenin's wife. 
And I think that actually brings us back to who the author of this text is. Nadia Kripskaya's position in the revolution was not just adjacent to Lenin. She was the commissar of education. She was instrumental in developing the young pioneers and the Komsomol and laid out the plan for educating the working people about communism and the new state. And it was said uh, at the time that every cook should know how to run their government, and that's due to Nadia's organization. So she wasn't just Lenin's wife, and her contributions to the revolution were invaluable. And I think that it's important for us to remember that. Now, I actually complained about this earlier before we recorded. I ordered her selected works book, and it was only 50 pages long. And that can't have been the extent of her work. She was the commissar of education. So that it's there's just no way um but the bulk of the work that i could find of hers was her writings on lenin and so throughout history it does appear that she has been reduced to just some subsidiary of lenin himself when um that's really sad because she was so incredibly influential in the reformation of that government one thing i just want to say on on learning through teaching just for a second is that when I think about learning through teaching, I think about how, how Mao tells us to bring the information to the masses and let the masses tell you. You don't need to be the world's most studied Marxist to understand your own material conditions. The working people can tell you what their problems are. They know what their problems are. When you teach people, it's not just about like, oh, we like, like we said earlier, it's not about teaching Marxists who can recite everything by heart and can just regurgitate what they've been told. It's about developing a system of education where people are just by the merit of truth, by the merit of the history that we have accumulated and the science we have accumulated, they will inevitably lead themselves to communism. That's what a proper Marxist education looks like because we're constantly going to the masses for answers. Like we can't just recite state and revolution to every workplace and expect revolution to happen tomorrow. We need to to go to the masses and, and talk about their problems. They bring their problems to us and we bring the theory to them. And then there is a dialectic in which we, we have the outcome of, of solution. So like it's, it's really important to just think about when you are learning, you should also be teaching. And when you are teaching, you should also be learning. Really well put. Hard agree. And as she, as, as Krupskaya lines out in this book, Lenin was reading Marx applying Marx selectively, he, he knew that you couldn't just take a line from Marx and apply it to any situation. He would be reading reading his more historical works and trying to compare the situations which he was writing about with the situations which were happening around him and seeing what things applied, what things didn't work, what could be used and what should be left out. Yeah, it's important to know that like the you know the Marxist dialectic, Marxist history, quote unquote, you don't just apply the dialectic to Marxist works or Marxist adjacent works. Like you can apply dialectical and historical materialism to any and all information you take in. So like, we don't want to bottleneck ourselves and think like, oh, well, this is, you know, Marxist history, which, you know, sure it is. It's, it's like the most accurate way of, of describing art as close as we can possibly manage to becoming objective history. That would be Marxist history, I suppose, because we're constantly pushing for dialectical and historical materialism that examines all things from all sides. But it's just important to remember that like Marxism isn't just for like, you know, for revolutionary texts. It's for any scientific or historical or any kind of work you're reading whatsoever or working on. 
it's just the lens that we look through. Or like uh, somebody, I think it was Andrew that you had mentioned in the past that it's the removal is. And so we're essentially just every time we evaluate something um, historically or theoretically, uh, we have to consider it from a dialectical materialist standpoint because realistically, it's literally the only logical method. And I guess for people that haven't been given a full explanation of what dialectical and historical materialism is. We did do an episode on Stalin's work of the same name, but to put it briefly, what it means is that it's essentially a way of evaluating the world around you. And basically, everything cannot be considered without also considering the contradictions within the problem. And that all things are a sum of history and circumstances and present conditions that exist once you get there. So it's the butterfly effect, but uh, you're talking about what got you to the butterfly. <laughs> so, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So everything that got you to that butterfly. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's all about just chasing externalities, if you think about it, is we're constantly like, if, if I want to examine a single issue, I'm looking for the things outside of that issue that somehow tangentially affect it. It's this never-ending search for the next variable. We realize that there is an objective truth out there. There has to be. But also, we understand our own inability to be totally objective. So dialectical materialism is just this never-ending chase for the most objective possible answer by viewing the most possible variables and every possible aspect that goes into a single issue. And that's what Marx's capital was all about. And then subsequently, that's what Lenin's imperialism was all about is is taking this singular concept and examining it from as many possible angles with as many possible variables as you can imagine. And that's how you come as close as possible to the objective truth. And Marx even uses Darwin to explain how he comes to the method. Like this isn't just, oh, this is my political No, this is basically the scientific method, but being used to evaluate all of life. I appreciate that. So nothing nothing that we've read, no Marxist text that we have read so far has been dogmatic, unsourced, idealistic, or baseless. Everything has been based on real circumstances with logical plans based on the players that it exist in the problem. And like that's that's just the consistent Marxist Leninist dynamic. So I appreciate that that I'm in a space that's like that because y'all are actually fucking logical. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Yeah, I think none of Marx's works and none of Lenin's works sprung out of a vacuum. They both read very, very broadly and very extensively. And I think one thing I did, we were mentioning Trotsky earlier, one thing this text did make me think about was like maybe it's time that I need to eventually read some Trotsky to understand like, what he was talking about. I mean, yeah, it's going to be difficult because he could be all over the place. But like, it's it's worth reading. I mean, there's a there's a quote in here from from Lenin talking about reading LaSalle, and the reason he read LaSalle was because Marx read LaSalle, and he's like, well, what did Marx take out of LaSalle? I'm going to have to read both of them to find out. And he said, after reading it, Marx's criticism is on the whole correct. It isn't worthwhile to read LaSalle's book, but. The work over this book gave Lenin himself a deeper understanding of Marx. He understood why this book of LaSalle displeased Marx to such an extent. It's really important to have broad reading habits, and it's it's a trap that we can all fall into. 
yeah, I definitely intend to read out of my comfort zone a bit more. This is a quote from a different work from Kripskaya called The Lessons of October, and she's talking about Trotsky specifically. And she says, the first thing which we must study is, is the international situation as it existed in October and the relations of class forces in Russia at the time. Does Comrade Trotsky call upon us to study this? No. (laughs) (laughs) So it's just, I suppose that's what we can expect. (laughs) We read it. So yeah, and then she also talks about, in that same quote, she says, And yet the victory would have been impossible without a profound analysis of the historical moment, without a calculation of the actual relations of forces. The application of the revolutionary dialectics of Marxism to the concrete conditions of a given moment, the correct estimation of this moment, not only from the standpoint of the given country, but on an international scale, is the most important feature of Leninism. The international experience of the last decade is the best confirmation of the correctness of this Leninist process. This is what we must teach the communist parties of all countries. And this is what our youth must learn from the study of October. But comrade Trotsky overlooks this question. (laughs) So I appreciated that. I think that's relevant to what we're just talking about. That she's talking about we need to understand all factors if we are to understand how to have a successful revolution. And that specifically, that is what Lenin did. And that is why Lenin's revolution was successful. Just towards the end of the book, she says, In conclusion, I will mention one more of Lenin's work over Marx, the popularization of Marx's teachings. If the popularizer takes his work seriously, if his aim is to give in a very simple and intelligible form an explanation of the very essence of this or that theory, this work will help him very much. Lenin treated this work very seriously indeed. Quote, There is nothing I would like so much as being able to write for the workers. I think it was really nice little insight into Lenin as a revolutionary. I love that. Yeah, it's a, it's a real familiar feeling, right? I actually think that the way Kripsky ended this is the best way to end this <laughs> overall. And she says, uh, the way in which Lenin worked over Marx is a lesson in how to study Lenin himself. His teaching is inseparably connected with the teaching of Marx. It is Marxism in action. It is the Marxism of the epoch of, or epoch of imperialism and proletarian revolutions. So I think that's what we can gain from this. <laughs> Thank you, Nadezhda Krupskaya. Read Marx, read Lenin, read Krupskaya. Read yes. Krupskaya. Yeah. Read Krupskaya, read Kalantai, read, read Zetkin, read Luxembourg, read Popova, Wollstonecraft. Read Trotsky. Did we, what did we Davis. <laughs> read Hegel. <laughs> <laughs> Don't read LaSalle, apparently. yeah (laughs) so yeah i am really glad we went over that oh yeah yeah that was that was fun thank you for listening to red book club if you'd like to reach out to us or to stay posted for episode updates you can find us on twitter at rbc pod or visit our new website at redbookclubpod.wordpress.com where you can find our full episode list and resources such as ebook copies of Nadezhda Krupskaya's How Lenin Studied Marx, which we've just been reading, as well as the future works that we have planned in our Marxist Feminist series. If you'd like to join the book club, you can find us on Patreon at patreon.com slash redbookclub, where you can gain access to our Discord server, where we meet every Sunday to discuss what we've been reading. Big thank you to the Craigbot for helping us to record, and to Keenan for our intro theme. Join us again next time for more from our series on works by Marxist feminists. 
Thanks again for listening, and see you next time. Solidarity forever. Здесь у нас холодные рассветы, Здесь на неизведанном пути Ждут замысловатые сюжеты. Надежда, мой компас земной, А удача, награда за смелость От песни довольно одной. Только о доме в ней пелась. Ты поверишь, что здесь издалека Многое теряется из виду Тают грозовые облака Нелепыми обиды Надо только выучиться ждать Надо быть спокойным и упрямым Чтоб порой от жизни получать Радости скупые телеграммы Надежда, мой компас земной Удача, награда за смелость А песни довольно одной Чтоб только о доме в ней петь И забыть по-прежнему нельзя когда-то не допели милые усталые глаза, синие московские метели, снова между нами города, жизнь нас разлучает, как и прежде, в небе незнакомая звезда светит, словно памятник на Надежда, мой компас земной, а удача, награда за смерть.